Hi, I'm Billy Shore. You're listening to Add Passion and Stir. This is our weekly conversation about food, about passion, and about making a difference. And I am joined by three people who are perfect for that conversation. One is my sister, Debbie Shore, who loves food. I do. And is passionate and loves making a difference. Thank and she's you. the co-founder of Share Our Strength. Good to be here. Uh, and I'm also here with Mark Friedman, CEO and president of Encore, and also the author of a number of books, including most recently, just like within the last couple of weeks, How to Live Forever. Who wouldn't want to read that? How to Live Forever, <laughs> The Enduring Power of Connecting Generations. And our longtime friend and former Share Our Strength board member, Stephen Piles, the father of modern Texas cuisine, joining us from Dallas. Uh, Mark, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Billy. It's and, an honor. And Stephen, thanks. It's great to reconnect, Stephen. Thrilled to be here, Billy. Thank you. Um, I want to start, Stephen, with you because you know us uh, so well. And you've been um, a chef who has made your career about uh, intersecting with community in such powerful ways. You're not only on our board, you were forever and maybe still are on the board of the North Texas uh, Food Bank. Life uh, board member. Life life board member? How does that, is that like, like uh-huh. dictator for life, that kind of thing? That's President it. for life? <laughs> well, I can't think of That's anybody it. that uh, would be better at that. Um, and the last time I saw you, I think, was at your uh, amazing restaurant, Flora Street Cafe. Uh, we usually start by asking folks to talk about kind of how they started being a chef. In your case, I want to know a little bit more about how did your um, chef career intersect in such a big way with your work in the community? When did that start for you? Well, uh, Debbie Shore would certainly know something about that. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Well, first of all, just kind of quickly, my, my career, I started in the truck stop in a truck stop cafe in Big Spring, Texas, got a degree in music and then ended up at the Great Chefs of France cooking school. So it was kind of circuitous route back to food. But I was doing, um, I was one of the uh, guest chefs invited to the 50th anniversary of the March of Dimes in Washington, D.C. back in 1988. And I'm uh, one of 20 chefs at a tasting. And uh, Deb and Kathy um, came to me and said, you know, we'd love to do an event like this for our organization, Share Our Strength, all over the country. Can we, would you help us do something in Dallas? And I said, sure, why not? And, and uh-huh. if you would remember, we tried to call you a couple of times, and you probably never got the message, but then we read that you were coming to town in the Washington Post. Oh, and we went to the hotel I, where you were staying. We stalked you. And we stalked you. <laughs> I can see why you forgot about better. that. Yeah. But, you know, that was. Selective memory on that one. <laughs> it was, I remember like, you know, Kathy and I looking at each other saying, should we like go to the hotel and just like go up to him? We you know, saw your picture and we figured we could just like go up and talk to you and be really yeah. nice and see if you would talk to us. And you mm-hmm. were, you were so, you know, you could have, you know, you could have just said like, yeah, I'll I'll talk to you when I get back to Dallas. But you were mm-hmm. really gracious and interested right away, and very authentically uh, cared about what we had to say. So thank you for that. Well, many I just years remember ago. being being very fascinated early on by uh, the whole aspect and um, you know very definition of what you all were doing in terms of hunger relief. Uh, it just it always made sense to me um, being in the chefs community and feeding people for a living 
that that would that would make sense. And it was a period of time, I think, in the United States where celebrity chefs were just uh, coming to be, and they were getting hit up for all these different charitable events, and and we were having to select what. The, the, the few charities, if not one, that, that really made sense to us, and, and this was just perfect timing for me and has stuck with me for life, obviously. Uh, and Stephen, uh, you're often referred to as the father of a lot of things, like the father of modern Texas cuisine. <laughs> uh, what does that one mean exactly? It all started, we, a group of chefs, four or five of us, Dean Faring, Robert Del Grande, Mark Miller, myself, um, started uh, a regional American cuisine. It's actually only the, American, um, uh, the only regional American cuisine that was developed, I think, by chefs called Southwestern in the early 80s. And we've all gone our different directions. And, and I'm, of all those, of those four people I mentioned, I'm the only native Texan, fifth generation West Texan. So my, we've all kind of changed our um, uh, value system, our, our, our perceptions of what it is we want to do and, and what Southwestern cuisine means to us. And um, uh, being a Texan, I, I really wanted to develop uh, something that didn't exist in terms of uh, the cooking and, and cuisine of Texas. So so I, I sort of just uh, tagged that name, uh, Modern Texas, and it just, it really is Southwestern with a specific influence or specific emphasis, I guess, on um, all things Texan. I was going to ask you, it's like, so for a lay person, what would I taste different at your table than I would somewhere else? You would taste uh, a very refined food, but um, sort of laden with things that you might think of as Texan, such as chilies and cilantro, uh, smokiness. Um, you know, we work with lots of grilled and smoked meats. And so uh, you, you might have a tamale, but it might have lobster in it. You might have a taco, but it would have a smoked duck in it. So, so it's it's very familiar and um, kind of uh, approachable, comfortable food, comfort food, but done in a, a modern, refined way that with that has a, a kind of a modern twist. The lobster caught my attention. I'm getting hungry just <laughs> sitting mm-hmm. here. And Stephen, the other thing I have to ask you because it's relevant to what our guest Mark Friedman is going to talk to us about is. Debbie and I were trying to remember how old you are. I'm 63. My sister's 61. Although Don't she doesn't say really my want anybody age. To know that. Why would you do that? And how old are you? Not only of Southwestern cuisine, but of you all, too. I'm 66. <laughs> You're 66? That I wouldn't have guessed. Oh. I was going to say, yeah. like, you know, 60 or 61. So you're 66. Okay, mm-hmm. the reason this is relevant is because I- our friend Mark Freeman, who's sitting right here and who's the CEO and president of Encore, has written this new book called How to Live Forever, The Enduring Power of Connecting Generations. And he's focused a lot on how uh, people in their 50s or past midlife continue to make a contribution in our society. Uh, he's the father of a bunch of things as well, including three boys, but also Experience Corps <laughs> and the Purpose Prize, which um, I think is having an event tonight that I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit about, Mark. Uh, but talk to let's start with Encore uh, and what it does and why it's become a passion of yours, this focus on uh, connecting the generations. Well, I'm going to have to shift gears because uh, listening to Stephen talk about the origins of Southwestern cuisine, I, I flashed on my purchase of of the Coyote Cafe cookbook many years ago. <laughs> and that was a life-transforming experience. Yep. And so, you, you know, that did 
for me what the lobster did for you, Billy. <laughs> <laughs> it brings it back. Encore is uh, we're, we're trying to build a movement of people in the second half of life who want to leave the world better than they found it. And particularly through standing up and showing up for young people. And um, been around for 20 years. This is, uh, this is our 20th anniversary. And for me, uh, it's my 60th birthday, so I feel like uh, the youngin in this uh, the conversation. The so I may mm-hmm. have to turn to the you three are. of you for some uh, wisdom. <laughs> I, w- I was also struck when you were talking, Billy, that you know, in in um, in doing the research for this book, I uh, was surprised to discover how recent it, it is that we would actually even know each other's age before the turn of the last century, the idea of chronological age in this country was was completely foreign. You know, nobody would know that somebody was 63 and 61 and 60. You mean people just wouldn't talk about it or? No, it was it was almost like knowing somebody's blood type today. They, they, people didn't huh. celebrate birthdays. The birthday song wasn't even invented until 1934. It's because we were such an age-integrated society that it seemed like the oxygen in the air. You know, people had a sense of- Age integrated meaning most people were kind of like bunched up around the same age, or what do you mean age integrated? No, people of all ages interacted in in daily life. You know, they they worked on farms where older people and younger people were laboring side by side. They didn't have like ideas about an older person wouldn't want to do this, or that person's too young, or anything like that. Is that sort of what you mean? Exactly. You know, like we have this notion now that education is for the young and work is for the middle. (laughs) And then, you know, a life of of leisure off to the side is, is for people who are in their 60s and beyond. And that that's a very recent development. We went from the beginning of the 20th century to being this thoroughly age-mixed society to being in a state of age apartheid now where older and younger people rarely mix in, in daily life, in the workplace, in schools, in, in uh, living arrangements. Or is that American or is that globally? Is that- it, it's, it, it's, I mean, I think we're leading that uh, reshuffling of society in this way. The idea that age would connote somebody's capacity or where they should be in life was, was very odd. Um, so our, our our dad, Debbie, was born in 1920, so nobody would have sung happy birthday to him for like his first 16 abso- years. Absolutely. His 14th yeah. birthday <laughs> would have oh been a gosh. real milestone. We got this wow. new song we want to unveil. <laughs> <laughs> what a um, weird thought. Why has he gotten some air time? <laughs> yeah. um, but but uh, you asked me about Encore, and, and a lot of what we're, we're trying to do is to fight that and to bring older people and younger people together in daily life in ways that um, uh, involve mutual benefit because older and younger people were were built to interact with each other. Going back to the beginning of human history, anthropologists now think that it was the role that older women played in the lives of children that helped us evolve from primates and become human beings. So it's very deeply rooted in the human experience, and yet we managed to uh, to run away from it over the last hundred years. And, and so I feel like you've been thinking about something that almost nobody else has thought about. How did this come to you? How did you get into this? How did I, you... I think St- Stephen talked about a circuitous route, and that, that was the case for me because I, I've i never um, taken a course in aging or gerontology. And when I started working on these issues, I was in my 20s, but I was very focused on 
the need of young people for love, emotional support, adults who care about them. And I felt like that was a real theme as I was thinking about the show today. We're talking about all these different kinds of nourishment. And there's a, a famous uh, psychologist that one of the co-founders of the Head Start program uh, now passed named Yuri Bronfenbrenner. And after his whole career of doing research on kids who made it against the odds, he was asked, you know, could you What's the secret for these kids? He said, what every child needs is at least one adult who's irrationally crazy about them. <laughs> and so hmm. um, I, I think I early on became really aware looking at, at young people who were struggling um, that they needed more adults who were irrationally crazy about them. And then uh, we did a study of the Big Brother Big Sister program and found that what Bronfenbrenner was talking about is actually true, and you could actually provide those kinds of, that kind of support for young people. But the problem was finding the human beings who could do the things that only people could do. That program, at the time we did research on it, had 70,000 young people who were being matched with a caring adult and 30,000 kids who were languishing on a waiting list for a year and a half. And so I got interested in older people because the demographers, even way back then, I was in my 20s, um, we, we weren't anywhere near the demographic Rubicon we're at now. Uh, it seemed like all the untapped time and, and numbers in society was accumulating in the older population. So I just got really interested in could you bring supply and demand together, the assets of this untapped resource, the needs of so many young people in a way where everybody benefited. Hmm. So let's test the hypothesis. Uh, Stephen and, and Mark, did you each have somebody who was irrationally crazy about you when you were a child? I I did. I had more than one person. Yeah, <laughs> no, tell us. I mean, we had a very very yeah. large family, and uh, I had a particular aunt that doted on me, and uh, and really, uh, in retrospect, gave me my interest in food. You know, she was a, an interesting woman who, you know, in Big Spring, Texas, um, asparagus was a was a real rarity, exotic food. And uh, so she introduced me to things like that. And I just remember uh, she could never take a compliment. That, that's what I remember most about her. I would say, oh, my goodness, Jean, this dinner is so good. And she would say, well, think about it, Stevie. The asparagus was on special, so I had to buy that. And... <laughs> So I, I remember my aunt Jean, and she was like besides your, my parents, but and but she was also like she an advocate a and a champion for you. Exactly. Yeah. She, yeah. She wanted me to really excel in whatever I did. She really uh, pushed me in music, and and she was just always there. How about you, Mark? You know, I was gonna. I, I in writing the book, I realized that my whole life. I've been moving from being under the wing of one older person to the next. And um, in fact, it, it, I, I realized that um, I, uh, it was time to start nurturing more young people myself. But I'm, I'm actually going to do something that I wanted to do in the book and I couldn't find the right place for. And at just this moment struck me, I, I feel like the most important influence is maybe as much as any of the individuals who mentored me was a song um, and it was a Guy Clark song. Um, and it was the story of, uh, he's a, a Texas musician, passed away a couple years ago. And it was the story of his relationship with his grandmother's boyfriend. Uh, it's called Desperado's Waiting for a Train. Oh, yeah, I know. Of yeah, course, number, of course, number 82 yeah. on Rolling Stones' right. list of the country Well, didn't the Highwaymen do that too? Time. Willie Nelson they, and, they, and they did, but the Highwaymen did that, Chris Christopherson? Uh, yeah, and, and when, in fact, when Guy Clark passed and had 
obituary in the New York Times, they included a video of him performing that song. But, that right? but it's it's one of the most beautiful songs about the relationship between an older person and a younger person. I was just a boy, they called me sidekick. <laughs> one of the lines. And that when I heard that song the first time, I, I just started crying. I it, it touched something very deep inside me. We were friends, me and this old man. Like desperados waiting for a train Like desperados waiting for a train For all these years I've been working on these issues, you know, with a kind of economist mentality, matching supply and demand, efficiency. But in fact, that song showed that this idea of connecting the generations was about so much more than efficiency. It was about humanity, about something fundamental in the human experience. Uh, I'm excited about this conversation for a lot of reasons, including I think I know something about music that my sister doesn't know. Because I don't think you know Guy Clark, and I don't, I don't. think you know Dublin Blues, and I don't no, think you know I, Stuff That Texas Works, cooking? and yeah. I don't think you know, um, what was it, Steel, uh, the Diamonds... Um, string guitar oh yeah um and, uh, so okay. billy and i are always yeah, we've been at this for uh, back a long and time. forth for years and yeah. actually so i i think mom always liked me best i always felt that way well, i know you do <laughs> I, she loved <laughs> but you know what my mother used to do was um and it may, it may speaking have, of crazy it, and irrational it, it, it may have had a strange effect but my i used to hear my mom on the phone right talking to her best friend or her first cousin or whoever it was and she would say oh my debbie can paint you should see her paint i couldn't paint at all my debbie can draw my debbie can dance and i was like why is she telling people that you know but she really believed it and i find myself so i do the <laughs> same thing with my daughter everything she does i'm telling a friend and even if it's like mediocre you know in my eyes it's got it's full of promise you know yes. and i just i just remember hearing my mother talk like that and now i'm passing <laughs> i'm passing the same thing down to my daughter which drives her crazy of course yeah. but but, it, but she'll but remember it. But it is. And I, you know, as, as you're talking, Mark, I've been thinking about when I was reading the background of, of the book and of you and just this, you know, the word purpose is really what comes to mind for me. And I guess what I wanted to share, um, which has to do with my daughter, I've been living next door to a gentleman who just passed away, a veteran uh, New York Times political reporter, Adam Clymer. And he was my neighbor. And the last couple of years of his life, he was quite sick. And he would call me, you know, very often to help. He didn't know me very well, but he would call me and ask me to help everything from open the door to reach something in his apartment to usually something on his computer or his TV or his VCR or something like that. And he would call sometimes and I wouldn't be home. And so I would call my daughter and I'd say, Sophie, can you go over and help Adam? And I have to say, I was not happy, but, you know, she was like 15 when this started and she wouldn't want to go. She didn't want to go. She did, she, I, we don't have any grandparents. She doesn't have any grandparents. Old and people so are scary. She... And he was very sick and old, and, you know, she didn't really want to be around him, frankly. Mm -hmm. And I would push her. I'd say, it's important to go. You know, he's, you know, for all these reasons, go and help Adam. So she'd go kind of begrudgingly. But I have to say, and nothing I could say would change her mind, the last six months of his life, she started to, you know, almost offer to go over. And have we seen Adam today? Mm -hmm. And it was nothing I could do, but it was that final, you know, the purpose that he need, you know, he needed her when I wasn't around, and she started to feel that she was needed. And I mm -hmm. think it really, nothing, you know, I couldn't have done that for her, mm -hmm. but somehow they ended up having this, you know, really sweet, you know, kind of relationship in the end. And I was so grateful because, as I said, without being, she wasn't really around anybody older than me or my brother, mm. probably. Yeah. So it really made a difference for her. Stephen, if you think of the culinary community as just kind of a microcosm, most chefs have mentors. 
uh, in a way. Does, mm-hmm. Is that is there a um, is there kind of a division by age? Do older chefs have to kind of continually reinvent? Do younger chefs connect with the older? How do you think about that? I know you've been the mentor to a lot um, of young chefs. Yeah. Um, well, I you know my real my I guess I had many mentors myself, but the most important in my mind was Julia Child. I met her when when I was young, and she was young for <laughs> at that point. Um, but, uh, you know, I just remember how important it was when she took an interest and, um, and, and told a story and, and, uh, you know, was, was genuinely interested in, in everybody around her, the cooks. And, uh, and, and I saw what an impact that that had, not only on me, but on, uh, even when I had restaurants, she would come to the restaurant and, and, and speak individually with each line cook, with each prep cook, and just, you know, ask them, how did you get started? And it just made their day, made their lives, you know, it was just, it had such an impact. So I learned so much from her and, uh, um, and I try, I've tried to, uh, return that sort of, you know, get, given that gift to the people that I've mentored, um, just taking the time and, um, and, and making sure that they have what they need and, and, and most of all that they're given uh, encouragement and uh, the confidence to do, you know, what they're, what they're capable of doing. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's definitely uh, delineated by age in my mind just because it's just a generational thing, you know, that one group helps the, helps the next. I'm going to ask Mark to ground us in some of the facts, not to get too deep into statistics, but we've got more folks in the U.S. today who were over 50 than under 18. Where, where are the trend lines taking us in terms of uh, division by age, the kind of division you're trying to eliminate? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's uh, it goes back to your early um, taking the little poll about all of our ages because uh, we're absolutely at the vanguard of a massive societal change. You know, you hear about the growth in the number of older people in society. You hear about increases in longevity, and they're dramatic. You know, in, in 1963, JFK gave a speech. We said we'd added years to life. Now it was time to add life to those years. Since that time, we've added two months a year to the American lifespan on a- on average. So we've been really good at adding these years. But what gets little attention is that in, in 2019, for the first time ever, we're going to have more older people than younger people in, in the society. There'll be more people over 60 with the four of us. So we're <laughs> right at that numbers. tipping point right we now, are, right today, this four, year, four come, weeks, this coming year. You know, wow. uh, at 20, 26 days, we will hit this Rubicon, and so did we you say more con- over sixty than under twenty? Than under eighteen? Uh, than under yeah. eighteen? Okay. And that's uh, that's a shock. We all, you know, we're supposed to be we're all about youth in this country. We split off from the old world, you know, and we're the new world. Everything is about um, about being young, but in fact, we're not young anymore. And and you know, a lot of the you know, my my kind of plea in the book was rather than trying so hard to to be young, to cling to our fast-fading youth. We need to be there for those who actually are. And that's, that's the only way we're going to make it as a society with more older people than than younger people and avoid conflict by age and, you know, even loneliness, you know, to go to your comments about mentoring. New research just came out that showed that the two loneliest groups in society are younger people and older people. And the Surgeon General a couple of years ago wrote an article in Harvard Business Review uh, making the case that that 
an epidemic of loneliness was the single biggest public health problem in America today. And so, you know, how do we connect people, particularly older and younger people, in ways where everybody benefits? Well, you know, I, I mean, 63 is not that old, and I never feel old. Uh, Debbie and I <laughs> took our families down to um, Disney World a couple of years ago, and while we were down there, we were taking the tram over, and everybody kept getting up to give us their seats, uh, which is a terrible feeling uh, when you're uh, in, when you, in your head you're still 29 <laughs> years old. But, you know, we noticed that after a couple of times, like the third or fourth time, somebody said, would you like to sit down, sir? Uh, yes. That was, that was painful. Well, I had my own uh, <laughs> personal Rubicon when I, um, about, Ten years ago, after I had crossed into my 50s, I ended up, uh, I had three young boys at the time, and um, I got a hotel room in Medford, Oregon, and um, had to um, get the AARP discount and three cribs in the room. So <laughs> I got an oxymoron. I think I, I was expecting yeah, the state yeah. police to show up. Uh, you know. Well, you know, one thing I'd like to ask both of you or hear you both talk about is, I feel, I feel like Stephen and Mark, you've both professionally and in terms of your career you've evolved but in in ways that uh, in some ways you kind of keep reinventing uh, in terms of what you what you do and what you focus on so Stephen I'm thinking in your case of restaurants that you've opened and closed and I've heard you say a number of times mm -hmm. that you know a restaurant doesn't need to be around more than 10 years you like to kind of Keep it mm -hmm. fresh, and um, you've had mm -hmm. some of the most iconic restaurants. I have a 10-year attention span. You have a 10-year attention span? That's pretty good, actually. Mm -hmm. Even uh, Stephen, but even if the restaurant is, I mean, does that assume, or should we assume that after 10 years, you know, the, the community is feeling that way, or is it like, if it was booming, would you still sort I, of feel that way? I, I think it's more me than the community. I mean, I think there's a part to play from each, but mm -hmm. um, I mean, classic example is um, Stephen Piles, my iconic restaurant uh, back uh, from 2005 to 2015. It was still doing well, but I was done. And it you just know, like, there's a, you just feel it like it's uh, yeah, time it's for time you to, to move on. Yeah. And I felt exactly, uh, uh, you know, it was a, I, I do 10 year leases, so that'll tell wow. you something. I'm, uh, I, I, I say Floor Street Cafe is my very long swan song. And I'm two and a half years into the 10, so we'll see what happens after that. Yeah. Well, well, you know, I, I, I'm interested no, in... The, it's just, it's a personal thing. Yeah, I'm interested yeah. in the kind of the personal side of this. Mark and I, I think, share a personal hero in John Gardner, who wrote a uh, classic uh, book about personal renewal. Um, and uh, mm -hmm. it feels like, like, to me, Stephen, you're saying that, like, some of this is just your own personal renewal and knowing what keeps you fresh and motivated. It is, and uh, in, in what I've found, it's taken me some time to figure this out, but when I renew myself, that, that renews my audience. You know, it's like they, it's almost as they've, they've come to expect that. So um, I, uh, it's important for me, and I think that's the way I've stayed relevant. You know, I look back um, at uh, the last 35 years uh, in, in, in the culinary field in, in America, and there are so many chefs that just are not around anymore. I mean, they're they're living, but they're just not they're mm -hmm. not relevant. And I think the way you remain relevant is to continually do something fresh and new, and and not try to just sustain. And it, certain people, it works for certain chefs or certain uh, professionals uh, to to just maintain something that works well and and keep the quality up over a 
30-year period, but it's just not its not my style. It's just uh, I, I really need to be doing something new and fresh, and I uh, travel so much, and, and, and so there's always an opportunity to bring yeah. something new and fresh into something, whether it's uh, the menu currently or maybe a new concept. You know, I just... I just have to I have to stay fresh. I feel like um hearing you Stephen makes me feel that share of strength has that same you know kind of mentality. I mean yes, we've been there from the beginning Billy and I, but we keep finding new ways and I know for me, you know, I have to find new ways to engage our network mm-hmm. whether it's you know dine mm-hmm. out or chef cycle or you know the dinners or friendsgiving or you know not that they're all mm-hmm. equally successful, but I have to keep reinventing the way I engage our network. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, and in, 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 and it's actually a kind of a like a painful process because in between those times, you know, I'm trying to really come up with the thing that will get me energized, and and that's exactly mm-hmm. what I'm hearing you say. It makes perfect sense. Yeah, well, certainly, Sheriff Strings a far cry from where it was in 1988. Was yes, beautifully so. Uh, Mark Friedman, uh, tell us who John Gardner was and why he's important to you. I brought him up in terms of this. Uh, uh, essay and book about personal renewal, but uh, I think you probably know him better. Well, I, you know, it's funny you, you mentioned earlier about the Purpose Prize tonight, and in a lot of ways, which is a prize for people over 50 who are social innovators, who are doing their best work at a time when, you know, it used to be the leftover years. And it, it was modeled on John's life. He won the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 1964, you know, sort of the ultimate gold watch for a civilian, and basically did all of his best work after that, he was Lyndon Johnson's Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare. His person implemented Medicare, the Elementary and Secondary Education Act. He invented Common Cause, the White House Fellows Program. Um, and he, he was a ma- he not only wrote about renewal throughout the life course, but, um, but was a model of it. And I went back not too long ago and, and listened to his speech at the 20th anniversary of Common Cause. He was already well into his 70s. And he uh, he said some things that have really continued to resonate for me. He said that he was more conscious than ever of the passage of time. And then he, um, he talked about getting a call from his 100-year-old mother who, uh, who said, Johnny, this whole aging thing has really got me down. And he said, <laughs> oh, Father, you've got all your faculties. You know, you've got two kids who love you, you know, <laughs> things things are, are bright. And he says, oh, it's not me I'm worried about. It's you and your brother. <laughs> and, uh, but he, he was, you know, he, he did just like Stephen would say, every 10 years or so, he had some great new project. And I was lucky enough to meet him when he was in his 80s and he had more time. Um, and, and that you know, time is really the soil in which, you know, love and relationship bloom. Um, I almost killed him once. I was driving on Highway 101 after a meeting late at night, and I was peppering him with questions uh, about his life, and I became so entranced. We were driving in a Volkswagen Beetle that I I uh, didn't realize that the traffic in front of us had stopped, and all of a sudden there's this accumulation of taillights, mm-hmm. and I'm slamming my f- my uh, foot on the brake and the car's swerving. John's got his hands planted on the dashboard and he's repeating the phrase, oh my God. <laughs> and I'm thinking I'm killing a national treasure. <laughs> but uh, but he survived and we, we uh, remained very close, really right to the end of his life. Well, I was just gonna say, yeah. he was a really amazing man. I only met him once. He was in an audience where I was giving a speech uh, and he very graciously came. I think he was in his 80s then and somebody took me up stands to, to 
speak to him. And uh, it was, for me, one of the just the high points of my entire life. And he always used to say something that I've tried to pass on to my kids. Uh, one of his many pieces of life advice was, don't try to be interesting, be interested, right? That was, you know, mm, yeah. be interested in, in curious, curious yeah. in yeah. others. Yeah. Don't be worried about showing off and being interesting yourself. And uh, just an amazing guide and uh, guru when it comes to personal renewal. What were you going to say, Deb? I was going to say to both um, Stephen and Mark, maybe when you're older, what's the theory of why your best years are after 50 or 60? Is it mm -hmm. the simple idea that you just have more time, that children are grown, there doesn't ha you don't have the same demands on you, maybe, you know, what are all those things and how would you, you know, kind of pinpoint what, what that is that frees people up to have their best years? Yeah, well, you know, when Stephen was talking earlier, I, I uh, wrote on the napkin in front of me, to, he, he talked about taking the time, and I think it is really about time. I think we're at, all four of us are at this sweet spot in life where we've got time lived um, and the experience and wisdom that comes from that, but time left to live as well. And I think we're at this juncture where, you know, in the past, uh, you know, wisdom was wasted on the old. Just when you got to this point, you were either too rejected by society or too worn out to do much with it. And now I think we have, we're at this intersection of knowing what matters, but actually having enough time to do something with it. Stephen, before you answer, I'm, I'm having this flashback of mm -hmm. having dinner with you. You remember at Rasika here in Washington, what, Two weeks uh -huh. or a week before I was turning 60. You remember this? Uh-huh. And oh, I yeah. was really in a bad way. And <laughs> you weren't having it. <laughs> I was in a bad way. And and Stephen was mm -hmm. older than me at the time, so he had been through it. And we were sitting next to each other at this big table of folks. And you were so sweet, Stephen. You took so much time with me that night. But I was really struggling. I didn't have a hard time at 50. I had mm -hmm. my daughter at 46 years old, so I had a, you know four-year-old when I was 50 mm -hmm. as a single parent. So I was real busy, mm -hmm. had no time to worry. Turning 60 was not going to work for me. And Stephen, you were just so incredible. He was saying all the things you were saying, how I have this incredible life that I've already lived, but I have so much more in front of me. And then the day of my birthday, you know, I get a call from the front desk and there's, you know, like 60 white roses oh. in my lobby. It was so mm -hmm. sweet. <laughs> um, but even even more was just the time you took with me that night to talk to me about, you know, mm -hmm. how. Because you, you said for you, it was like the best time of your life after 60, Right. 50 was tough for me, and uh, I thought that was the end of the world. Uh, but I guess by the time I got to 60, I thought, well, hell, might as well keep going. Yeah. Um, for me, it's it's just an incredible trade-off because um, I'm so less concerned what anybody thinks. You know, that's— um, Liberating. Uh, it's liberating. It's liberating. Yeah. It's absolutely liberating to, to just live my life for me and for the people that I love and, and um, you know, not be concerned about what someone thinks, what, uh, what impression I think I'm making. It's, it's um, you know, and if, and if I have a failure, big deal. You know, I close a restaurant, move on to the next. It's not a big deal as opposed to taking it so personally and having it feel so tragic at mm -hmm. 30 or 40. You know, it's it's uh, it's very liberating. And, um, you know, I think there's there's the perspective. My perspective on life is so different. Even when I travel now, you know, I just got back from India and I, I wouldn't have had that. In fact, I was there 10 years ago and it was a completely different experience. You know, I, I was I was able to really uh, reach out and just uh, I just feel like I've I've gotten closer to um, to my humanity the older I get. Mm hmm. I wanted to know what you meant by that, how you recognized it, just what it what what that feels like in the moment. 
Well, I think I've always thought of myself as being this person amongst other people of my, you know, my peers and, and, uh, kind of working within that system. And, and, and in India, it, it just became apparent that, uh, I'm just, uh, part of a much greater whole, you know, that there's this whole sea out there that, uh, that, that we're all part and parcel to, but, uh, it really just made me understand um, life and death better, and uh, just what my purpose here, if there is one, uh, and and it just made me understand that that I'm just, you know, a person living in the moment, and and have to be um, a part of all that's around me. And there was this just big, incredible awakening of uh, what what humanity was. And was that something that hit you in the moment, Stephen, or you reflected upon afterwards, or both? Some combination uh, of both. It, it, ref, it reflected. It, it, it's why I reflected on it, and it really came to. It, it, both times of India, this time in particular, I had to get further from the situation to let everything kind of sink in. You know, it was this, this experiential thing that was just happening in the moment that was so quick and, and, and overwhelming at times. And so the further I get from it, the more it settles in my heart. And so it's something that really has come to me over time. Stephen, you know uh, somebody that works with Debbie and I, Chuck Schofield, who's been with Sheriff's Strength for mm-hmm. 20 years. And Chuck, uh, his uncle, Cubby, has a ranch in Texas, and Chuck visits him regularly. He's about 96 now. He actually still works the ranch. They've got cattle. Uh, he works it with a little bit of help, but mostly he and his wife. And uh, Chuck drove over there uh, a few months ago, and uh, Cubby was sitting on the porch on the rocking chair, he had a big smile on his face, and uh, Chuck said, Cubby, how you doing? He said, I'm doing great. He says, I'm just sitting here remembering how great my 80s were. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's all relative. Um, it's all relative. <laughs> um, Stephen, you just talked, we were, as we were talking about renewal and you were talking about travel, you mentioned just coming back from India. What was this most recent trip about? Mm-hmm. Well, I, it was a, an invitation from a friend who was taking her son on a 30th birthday party. He had been to the Pushkar Camel Fair when he was 15 in Rajasthan, and she asked him where he wanted to go now at 30, anywhere in the world, and he said he wanted to go back there. So, And is the Pushkar what, what is Camel it? Fair Tap what along. it sounds like, or is it something different? <laughs> it, exactly. It's it's a camel fair. It's where they sell camels. And it is. Uh, and, and it was explained to me from a, from a woman who had been two years before. She said, it's dirty and nasty and the best experience you will ever have. <laughs> and and did it, and it, did it, it live was. up to expectations? I have a newfound love for camels. <laughs> they're, ab- they're absolutely beautiful. You're, you're I, probably going to be I've cooking one next camel. week. If, <laughs> I know you. Oh, no. <laughs> Forget the we lobster. didn't have that. We, we actually had camel milk. But we didn't have we didn't have camel meat. No, it's uh, we rode camels and it, it's just a spectacular desert fair. I mean, it really was wow. wonderful. But so obviously Delhi and, and lots of Rajasthan and Jaipur and lots of interesting food and spice. But what I came back with was something really interesting. And again, it, it, the difference in ten years makes in my perception. And when I was there the first time, I didn't pick up on this as much. Well, of course, I was a different person, but also this our country was a different place. But what I came back with this time was just realizing what a what an incredibly gracious, generous, um, hospitable, loving, and happy people they are. Mm. You know, so many of them have nothing, and they're they're completely happy and satisfied. Uh, I think, you know, we, we have too much here and it's not enough and the bickering and fighting and it's just, it, it really was refreshing to see 
uh, humanity. And it's a sea of humanity. There's, there's, you know, it's just overwhelming uh, uh, sensory overload, certainly, in so many ways. But it was just such a, 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 I mean, I almost didn't want to leave. I just felt so loved there. It's mm. really, it was really a wonderful experience. Wow. And it sounds like uh, the perspective enabled you to see us a, a different way and our, you know. Absolutely. Our, our kind of neediness <laughs> yeah. as you were yes. describing it. Mark, the time is just flying by here. But I want to make sure we get an understanding of some of the key points in your new book about connecting the generations and what are some of the steps that you recommend as a society we take so that we get these benefits of a more in a kind of the mutuality a more integrated uh, sense between older and younger generations mm. well you, you know you talked earlier you asked me about how I started and it was really around what kids need and I think what I learned over all these many years as I uh, was going from being young to old myself is that we need to nurture the next generation, you know, every bit as much as they need that support from us. In fact, there's now research from the longest study of happiness in an adult life, the Harvard study of adult development that shows that older people who invest in, connect with, nurture the next generation are three times as likely to be happy as those who fail to do so. And in fact, George Valent, the psychiatrist who led the study for 40 years, has an exquisite phrase to describe that. He's, you know, it's not accidental. It's built into human nature. He says, biology flows downhill. And <laughs> if biology flows downhill, why the hell have we been trying to swim upstream? You know, <laughs> pretend we're young instead of being there for those who actually aren't. So I think we need to get that right and understand that an important part of purpose in later life is connecting in ways that flow down the generational chain that nurture the future, the future that we won't even see ourselves, but we're connected to nonetheless. And I think what we need to do is we got to reorganize society so that... In a million ways. In I mean, a million when ways. When you think about advertising and culture, I mean, the culture of this country, what you're saying makes so much sense. And I'm really inspired, actually, by everything that you've said today. And you too, Stephen, just, you know, as I think about the next 10 years of, for myself. But you're also just, you have to be so focused. I'll be because, there for 70. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. I'll need you. You'll need it. You know I need it. I'll, I'll help you through the door. Thank you. Um, 70 white roses could be expensive. But, <laughs> but how, do you, how, do you, how do you, you know, balance that with the, all the cultural messages that we get, which are not these Right. Well, you know, I think one of the biggest things we need to do is, uh, Billy said earlier, you know, older people are scary, and they and they are. I think that young people are really afraid of older people because we have lost a sense of the wholeness of life. You know, we yeah. don't, we if as we warehouse all the people who are over a certain age, you know, it does. Since we're going to get that point ourselves, it's you know, I think it's a it's a fear of the future that creeps in. But it's, I think we I, I believe in proximity. You know, I think people of all ages need to live near each other. They need to work together. They need to. I don't want to go back to some nostalgic mythic past, but I want to find new ways to do old things. Quick question for you, because I feel like when I asked you before, is that a very American thing? I've spent a lot of time in Mexico. And the generations all live together. They live together and they are so happy about it. I mean, they wouldn't think of not going with their grandmother and their grandfather mm -hmm. to the market on Sunday. It's just they are all living together. So I do feel like it's probably more here. So I guess my question was, is there a country that does it a lot better than we do? 
Um, well, you know, I, I, I think I think there are so um, many countries. Do. So many. Yeah. India must be somewhere. I would think, Stephen. China, maybe. India, yeah. China. My goodness, China. But you know, a lot of Asian countries too, where that you know has been such an um, this multi generational connection has been such an important part of the fabric of life. Are discovering it's not happening naturally anymore. I, I spent time in Singapore last year, and they have a three billion dollar initiative to. Um, create a kampong for all ages, kampong being the Malay word for village and being a model of intergenerational harmony. And they're doing all these pragmatic things. They're co-locating senior centers and preschools. They're building housing that's designed to be not just for young families or for old people, but for these three-generation flats. In every aspect of of life, they're actually making that a a priority. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to be as creative in in places like here um, where we've lost that in bringing people together as we were over the last century and splitting them apart because we were absolutely ingenious at that. And I, I read something of yours that I was just fascinating. I found it very provocative. Tell me if I've got it right, which is that some of this effort to move older people into assisted living in their own places, there's a commercial interest and a kind of a profit motive that's driving some of this as well. And, yeah. that, and that becomes hard to overcome. Yeah. I mean, you know, it actually mm-hmm. all changed in the in the middle of the last century when a guy named Del Webb, who owned the Yankees from 46 to 64, who invented the motel, built Las Vegas and came up with the phrase the golden years and built Sun mm-hmm. City, which was the first age segregated retirement community in America and just redefined the American dream that the goal was to graying is playing, you know, to get to this Graying magical, like that. Uh, you know, golden <laughs> years existence where you could, you know, play shuffleboard oh, and God. golf. And and it, it caught on. And yeah. I mean, the, the day they opened Sun City, 100,000 people showed up. There was a traffic jam for 12 miles leading into this dusty cotton field in Peoria, Arizona. And so, you know, a lot of what what's taken place is manufactured, manufactured for not the highest motives in the world, and I think we really need to find a way to undo. Whose responsibility is it? Governments, all of ours, society, Well, I'd like, I'd like that $3 billion dollars that they're spending in Singapore. In fact, I'll sell yeah, for okay. one. Okay, uh, <laughs> so, so government can play a role in that. But, yeah. you know, even as, a, as individuals, even the housing decisions we make, you know, do we want to go off to Shady Acres, you know, to, uh, to spend the rest of our days, you know, uh, on the putting green, or or do we want to try to put ourselves in situations where we're we're likely to run into younger generations in in our, in our daily life? Because um, you know the real fountain of youth is the fountain with youth. I mean that is the the true mm. way to be happy across these longer lives. So the book is How to Live Forever: The Enduring Power of Connecting. Generations. It's been on sale for just a few weeks since uh, November twentieth. November twentieth. Uh, okay. Got to go out. People have purchased it so far. I'm sure. And get it. Um, <laughs> no, I don't believe that for a second. What's next for you, Stephen? <laughs> um, well, I'm working with a group, uh, uh, hotels and resort called Benchmark, and it's been, it's been an interesting um, transition because I, I've always said 
I love the the aspect I love most about the Our rest executive of the producer the is Peter Ogburn. At Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhall. Tabletops to the music to the food, the, you know, and then you open it and have to run the damn thing. <laughs> so uh, I've with, with my work with Benchmark, I'm creating concepts for them, and they operate them. So they run them, and I operate them. So I'm really uh, enjoying that. Um, license agreements and that sort of thing. And then I uh, want to continue certainly my work with, uh, in hope maybe even a bigger way, uh, with uh, Share Our Strength with No Kid Hungry. i am uh, got a call tomorrow to plan our dinner in the fall. So that's awesome. always a, a great opportunity. So. I don't think anyone's been with us longer than you. And the fact that you're up for, uh, for more is very inspiring yeah. and appreciated. The, the, the one thing that, that's come into play for the last couple of years, I'm working with a international travel group. So it's, it's allowed me an opportunity to take my sort of fans uh, to, to exotic places around the world. So travel has become part of my business as well. In fact, Wolfgang Puck told me many years ago, he said, Stephen, if you, if, 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 try not to let work get in the way of your travels. And if you can make travels your work, all the better. And it took me a while to understand that, but I think I've finally done it. So I'm, it's pretty, pretty fortunate. That's so cool. Mark, what's next for you? Oh, I'm, I'm going to learn how to play the guitar and sing Desperados Waiting for oh, a Train good, for good luck, good luck, good 70th <laughs> birthday. Um, thank you both so much uh, for being part of this conversation. Really great. Mark Friedman, congratulations on being here for Thanks, the Purpose Billy. Prize. Uh, you had a piece in the, uh, an interview in the New York Times yesterday, December 4th, that people can Google and look up the December 4th New York Times with Mark Friedman. is really fascinating. Uh, and Stephen Powell's lifelong friend and champion of our work. Uh, thank you so much for everything you do, Stephen. My pleasure, Billy. Thank you, Deb. Great yeah, having thank you both. You so much. Uh, it was fun. For our, for our listeners, this Ad Passion and Stir is the only place where you can hear about the Pushkar Camel Fair. You won't find that on any other <laughs> podcast. You won't get somebody like Stephen Powell and Mark Friedman and Debbie Shore all talking together. So thanks for listening to Ad Passion and Stir. Find our other episodes at adpassionandstir.com. We'd love you to review us, to rate us, to subscribe, to tell us about your friends. And uh, we're grateful for the support of our visionary leader, Paul Woody Woodall, whose idea this podcast was and who produces every episode so well. Kelly Griffin, who works on our team and the entire group at Share Our Strength. I'm Billy Shore. You've been listening to Ad Passion and Stir. This is a song about a man who was kind of like my grandfather. He was really my grandmother's boyfriend. His name is Jack Prigg. This is a song called Desperados Waiting for a Train. And I'd play in the Red River Valley And he'd sit in the kitchen and cry and run his fingers through seventy years of living and wonder Lord as ever well I drill gone dry with his friends me and his old man was like desperado waiting for a train like desperados waiting for a train